Well, good morning and uh, welcome to those of you here and those of you joining us online as well. Welcome. It is, it is cold here, certainly, but don't worry about us. We've got some folks that have broken up a few of the pews and they've made fire pits here in the sanctuary and they're warming themselves. So we're good. We appreciate your prayers, but we're, we're, we're in good shape here. It's good to have you all here. Um, I want to start my message this morning by showing you a clip from one of my favorite musicals because we all need more musical theater in our lives, I believe. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Yes, amen. Uh, it's called Into the Woods. I got to be in this, this play when I was in college. I played Jack. Highlight of my uh, career being in theater. And uh, we're going to watch this scene from the movie. And the, if you don't know the musical, the first act of Into the Woods, uh, it inter interweaves... Uh, Jack and the Beanstalk and Cinderella and Rapunzel and Little Red Riding Hood and there's a baker and his wife and all these stories come together and at the end of Act One, everything is resolved, uh, everything is as it should be and uh, as Act One ends, the narrator says, to be continued. And you go to intermission going, what do you mean, to be continued? Like, it's all, we should go home, this, everything's fine. Well, the second act, everything falls apart and uh, just sort of chaos ensues, a, a much more normal life response, which is what the, the writers of the musical said. They wanted to kind of talk about what happens after the happily ever after. And so uh, towards the end of the, of, the, of the show, the baker's wife is killed and the baker is furious and he wants to know, he wants to blame someone. And so in this clip that we're going to watch here, he is... He wants, he's looking for who it is that he needs to blame for his wife's death. And this is starring James Corden as the baker and he's addressing Jack first. It's because of you there's a giant in our midst and my wife is dead. But if this is my fault, I was given those beans You persuaded me to trade away my cow for beans And without those beans, there'd have been no stock To get up to the giants in the first place Wait a minute, magic beans for a cow so old That you had to tell a lie to sell it Which you told were they worthless beans Were they oversold? Oh, and tell us who persuaded you to steal that gold See, it's your fault No Yes, it's your fault No Yes, it is It's not It's true Wait a minute, though I know it's still a god to get my cow back From you So it's your fault Yes No, it isn't I'd have kept those beans But our house was she made us get a cow to get the curse reversed It's his father's fault that the curse got placed And the place got cursed in the first place Oh, then it's his fault So it was his fault No Yes, it is, it's his I guess Wait a minute, though I jumped on the beanstalk Right, that's clear But without any beanstalk Then what's queer is How did the second giant get down here in the first place? Second place? Yes How? Hmm. Well, who had the other bean? The other bean? The other bean? You pocketed the other bean? I didn't, yes, I did So it's your fault No, it isn't, because I gave it to my wife So it's her fault No, it isn't Then who's is it? Wait a minute, she exchanged that bean to obtain your shoes So the one who knows what happened to the bean is you You mean that old bean that your wife Oh dear, but I never knew and so I threw Well, don't look here So it's your fault, but it's her fault But and it isn't mine at all But what? Well, if you hadn't gone back up again We were needy You were greedy Did you need that pen? But I got it for my mother So it's her fault then Yes, and what about the harp in the third place? The harp, yes She went and dead me too I dared you to You dead me too She said that I was scared So she did me. No, I didn't So, so it's, it's your fault, fault. Wait a minute so just brilliant, brilliant writing by Stephen Sondheim, and it is an, uh, one of humanity's oldest pastimes, figuring out who is to blame. We always need to know. 
As a parent, you want to know, who did this? What's going on? Where, who's to blame? It's just a natural, human, visceral response. What's, what's, who do we have to blame? For better or worse? I say for worse because sometimes that's sort of not the point. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a waste of our time and effort to try to worry about who's to blame. And I say for better because sometimes it is important and accountability is important. Which reminds me of a conversation I had with my neighbor last week. He was helping me uh, snow blow the end of my driveway and we're t- I don't even know how he got into this topic, but he says to me as he's leaving, he says, you know, and that's what's wrong with our country. And I was very nervous to hear what he had to say next. <laughs> but you, you want to know too, don't you? We all want to know what he says next. What he said was, there's no accountability anymore. And I was a little bit relieved that that's, that's what it was. Because I could get behind that. Sure, yes, that's, that, okay, I can get behind that. And his example was, he said, yeah, I've heard there's a bunch of libraries that aren't charging late fees anymore. Just, it's just chaos. Well, I looked into it, and it's not just chaos. They're figuring out ways to make sure if you have too many things overdue, you can't check out more things. So there's, there's built-in accountability, but I get his point, and I, I understand it. What we find here in our culture is a lack of accountability. We, we hear people saying instead, I messed up, it's on me. A lot of times it's things like, Mistakes were made. Our passage today uh, shows us something a little bit shocking. We see Jonah taking responsibility for his failure. We see someone paying the price for their shortcomings. We see accountability and we see one man dying so that others might live. Or do we? Is, Is Jonah really sincere about this or is there something else going on? Well, We're in Jonah 1, and uh, in the first 10 verses, which we've looked at previously, Jonah, of course, is a prophet. God has asked him to go to Nineveh. He wants none of that, and he heads towards Tarshish. On the way there, uh, on the boat, God sends the storm, and the people cast lots, basically like, uh, like drawing straws, and they determine who's responsible, because even in the Old Testament, we needed someone to blame. And through this, they determine that it's Jonah but they don't know what to do about it. So we're here in verse 11, Jonah 1, starting in verse 11 through 17. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah's asleep. He wakes up. He realizes that it's it's his fault. He knows what has to be done. God is angry and needs an offering to be satisfied. And the sailors, for their part, they do what they can so that Jonah doesn't have to die. They try to row back to land. The idea of killing him doesn't sit well, right? So you imagine one of these sailors going home, 
you know, after work, well, how was your work today, honey? Well, it was, it was okay. We had this weird storm, and uh, we figured it was because of this one guy, so we killed him. It's like, you did what? So they don't want this guy's blood on their hands. So they're trying to save him, but they can't. And so they sort of say, sorry, uh, you know, we tried. Splash. Now remember, Jonah expects to die. The sailors assume that he is shark meat. But in God's graciousness, he provides this, this whale, fish, whale, uh, to swallow Jonah, not to kill him, but to protect him. And we can't know the intention of Jonah from this story definitively, but we've got some clues. So in the text, there's no mention in Jonah's story here. There's, there's, there's no mention of God or of repentance. It's possible that he was just doing this for the good of the people. In the original passage, the NIV takes this out, but uh, it in includes the words for you at the end of this. It says, perhaps the sea will, fall, will uh, quiet down for you. So the idea is that I'm worried about you. Jonah's not particularly worried about this God that he's offended. So there's some disagreement among scholars as to what Jonah's motivation is for his response. Is he having compassion for the sailors? Uh, and is he, is he really remorseful? Or is he saying, in essence, I would rather die than go to Nineveh? And to be honest, it's not terribly important where we land on this because ultimately, it doesn't matter. Jonah says, look, I'm to blame. Throw me overboard. Which brings us to the most important theme of our passage today, the idea that Jonah gave his life in order to save the lives of others. Now, this, of course, is the primary theme of the New Testament, but we see this revealed in the Old Testament as well. We see this very early in Genesis when uh, Adam and Eve, they're stuck with their sin and they kill animals to make clothes for themselves. So the first thing that dies is in response to their sin. We see when God asks Abraham to uh, offer his son Isaac, God provides a ram in, instead of sacrificing Isaac. We see this in, in some ways in Joseph, who is left by his brothers to die, and then they, they think he's gone, they think he's dead. Miraculously, he shows up later in Egypt and saves the Jews. Of course, the entire Levitical system where God provides a, a way by which they can sacrifice an animal so that the animal pays for the shortcomings as opposed to them. And here we have Jonah saying, I will take the hit for you. So this idea of, of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, when you think about it, it's what true love at its core really is. Some of us of a certain age will remember a famous line from a movie, love means never having to say you're sorry. It's a movie before my time. But I, people still quote the line, and uh, I, I, I couldn't disagree more. That's a different sermon. But uh, love means never having to say you're sorry. I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I think a better sort of understanding of love is that love is death. Death to self. I heard that line actually from one of my former students, so I want to give her credit. Uh, love is death. And I, I've, I actually say this uh, in wedding sermons. It's really, really romantic. I say, love is death. You may kiss the bride. It's, it's nice. Uh, 
But that's what it is. So a response to love is death, some might have, is that's terrible. A death to self Love means that, that you're, you're diminished as a person. You would lose your identity if, it's, if all you're doing is dying to yourself. Well, Tim Keller points out that when we do it the right way, we aren't diminished. There, there is a wrong way to do that. There is the way of the martyr. There's the person who says, no, 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 I'll do it. And we've all seen people that, that live their lives like that. And, and I remember the first time I heard Someone who was at, at an old church of mine say, used this phrase. She was sort of complaining about her sister who was like this. And she said, you know, and I said to her, I was like, Brenda, get off the cross. We need the wood. You know, great, great line. Just captures that martyr mentality well. So that is not the way to do it. But when it's done the right way, it does not diminish us. Keller says, uh, in such love, we become stronger, wiser, happier, and deeper. That's the pattern of true love, not a so-called love that uses others to meet our needs for self-realization. In fact, why do you think this kind of sacrificial love is so prevalent, not just in the Bible, but really in, in stories told through, throughout the world and forever. So probably the most famous one would be the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which of course is inspired by, uh, by Jesus. But you've got, you've got Edmund uh, who is, you know, sold out his siblings and he, he owes his life to the White Witch, but Aslan steps in, in his place. Uh, more recently, those of you that are fans of Stranger Things, the Netflix series, at the end of the, the last series, Last season, Sheriff Hopper uh, gives his life so that the others can be freed. Now, we know that he's actually, somehow he made it out, we find out. But for an entire episode, we think Sheriff Hopper's gone. And it's, it's powerful, the sacrifice that he made. One of my favorite TV shows, Friday Night Lights, I won't give it away. It's a great, great TV show, go watch it. But Tim Riggins does this amazing sacrifice at the end of the, of the last season or in the end of season four, for his brother. Uh, there's a Star Wars moment in one of the, the later movies where the Laura Dern character, she goes hyperspace in her ship to the bad ship to, to save everybody even though she dies. So this sacrificial love is, it's, it's everywhere. It's powerful. Why? Well, maybe it's because that's the centerpiece of the greatest story ever told, the gospel. That God, when it was time to show what perfect love looks like, that's what he did. And, and the power of this is displayed in, in our story, in Jonah as well. You look at how the sailors respond. They were greatly afraid, a different kind of fear than they showed from the storm. The quiet after the storm makes them fear not just any God, but the, the true God, Jonah's God. Which is ironic, given that Jonah is the anti-missionary. He's running away from his call, and yet in the course of that, he converts these sailors. So what do, what do we do with all this? Well, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus talks about Jonah in Matthew 12. Pharisees, the teachers of the law, namely the religious leaders who were trying to trap Jesus into doing something so that they could 
could, could pounce on him. They asked for a sign. He said, show us a sign. And this is how Jesus responds. He's not playing their games. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he goes on to say, something greater than Jonah is here. So why does Jesus bring up Jonah? What, I think what he's doing, he's, ba- he's basically turning the story of Jonah into a parable. He's saying, well, you, you, know, you know the story of Jonah. Jonah spent three days in the fish. I will do something similar but greater because he says someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is, of course, the true and better Jonah. And Jonah was pointing to Jesus all along. But I I do think it brings up an important question. Why? Why is the sacrifice of Jonah necessary? And why is the sacrifice of Jesus necessary? I've gotten this question a lot over the years. As a pastor, people say, well, you guys talk about Jesus dying a whole lot. Why, why does Jesus have to die? Couldn't, God's God. Couldn't God just go, yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. It's all taken care of. I mean, yes, God can do what he wants, but Jonah has disobeyed a good and holy God, and God is not happy about it. But what was behind God's anger? What was behind the storm that he sent to stop Jonah from running away. It was actually God's heart for creation. God's heart for his people. God's heart for the Ninevites, in fact. His anger isn't petty. It's rooted in love for people. Jonah's disobedience meant that God's plan for the Ninevites wasn't moving forward. And that's where the storm came from. And in a similar way, when we disobey God, there's a similar sense in which his good plan for each of us is broken. He wants us to live in joy, in in goodness, in, in freedom with others. Our rebellion summons God's anger, not because he's a tyrant. It's because his holiness has been ignored And because our flourishing is at stake, right? I'm going to say that one more time. I think it's really important. God is angry at sin, not because he's petty, but because his holiness is ignored and our flourishing is compromised. So what does he do? God doesn't punish us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He provides himself in the person of Jesus. This concept shows up in the New Testament uh, specifically in the form of this Greek word, hilosmos, doesn't matter what the word is, but uh, it gets translated propitiation, which is a word I had never heard until I came to seminary. Uh, But the more modern translations use the word atonement or atoning sacrifice. But I think the word propitiation is actually helpful, and I'll I'll explain why in a minute. So Mike, at the end of his sermon last week, actually quoted this verse, 1 John uh, 4.10, 
very famous verse. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as, and it's this word, hilasmas, as the propitiation for our sins, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the reason why I, I think the propitiation is, is more important to use there is one, I think if, if I had read that when I was younger, I probably would have gone to a dictionary and looked it up. When I read an atoning sacrifice, I go, yeah, I'm not really even sure what that is, but I kind of know and I move on. But this is the centerpiece, the center point of the New Testament, that Jesus is the, the propitiation. Propitiation is the, the thing that turns away someone's wrath. If someone is angry at you and you offer them propitiation, it, it, it brings that relationship back together. So it's atonement at one. You have been, your relationship has been broken. You have been made at one again. Jesus is the, not just an atoning sacrifice, but the propitiation, the ultimate sacrifice bringing together God and man. I also really like Peterson's translation in the message. Jesus is a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. That's what his sacrifice is about. And before we head into communion, I want to ask and answer three questions as it relates to God's sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And then talk about three things that uh, Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf does. Kind of rapid fire. So first, the three questions. I want to ask if Jesus' sacrifice, was it fair was it cruel and was it necessary? So first, was it fair? That is, if, if I'm the offending party, why, is, why does Jesus do it? That's not fair to ask an innocent man to die on my behalf. Is it fair? Well, I, and I think the answer to is it fair is yes and no. No, it's not fair because you and I certainly do deserve to die for our sins. Romans makes it clear that the wages of sin is death. Jesus was innocent, and so of course it's not fair. But in God's economy, it's fair in that he takes it on himself, and the penalty has to be paid, which we'll, we'll cover in a minute. But if the penalty on us gets put on to another person, then that person deserves that penalty. Substitute deaths are allowed. So that's, was it fair? Number two, was it cruel? People ask if... The death of Jesus is cruel. It's, it's, it's likened to cosmic child abuse that God would send his son to be, to be abused, to, to die in our place. It is cruel, if you sort of take it out of the picture, it's cruel to, to ask your son to die. But people forget that the Bible says Jesus laid down his life. Now, you could say, oh, what about that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yes, that is a moment where Jesus' humanity is on display, where he knows what he is going to do and he knows how difficult it is. And he says, look, if there's another way, I will take it, but not my will, but yours be done. The book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross. And he was, he was marching towards it his whole life. In this passage I just read from Matthew 12, he says, look, Jonah's doing that. The Son of Man is doing this. He was ready. He willingly laid down his life for us. So no, it's not cruel. 
And finally, was it necessary? Now this gets back to accountability. Mike has talked about this uh, in in various ways. I'll, I'll talk about it this way. Was it necessary? So imagine that, uh, you know, I, I need to borrow a truck. Those of you that own a truck, uh, in this area in particular, I grew up in Texas. Everybody had a truck in Texas. So you, you didn't have to worry necessarily if you owned a truck. Was ever. Those of you that own trucks, I'm so sorry. Because if you, I would hide my truck, I think, if I had one. Because once people find out you have a truck, it's like, hey, can I, can I borrow your truck just, just real quick? So your, people are always wanting to, so imagine I'm like, hey, can I, can I borrow your truck for something? And so uh, I take this truck and I, I go and I do my thing. And on the way back to returning it, I black ice, spin around, telephone pole. This thing is toast, man. This thing is absolutely total. I can't even drive it away from the scene. I'm fine. So I call my friend. I'm like, listen, I'm so sorry. You know, the truck, truck is gone, man. It's, it is total. So what's he going to say? He's going to say, oh, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm really sorry about your truck. And he's going to say, ah, oh, listen, it's fine. No big deal. I always wanted to get a new truck anyway. Don't, don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, but listen, your truck, we got to replace your truck. And they're like, yeah, listen, insurance will cover it. And I actually don't even know. Is my insurance covered? His insurance covered? But one thing that I know cannot happen is we, it, there's no just like, oh, well, no more truck. He needs his truck back. The truck has to be replaced, whether I pay for it, he pays for it, the insurance company pays for it. There's no just, oh, well, no more truck. You've, you've got to replace the truck, right? He needs his truck. So in the same way, the price has to be paid for our sin. The New Testament says that we are enemies of God. There is a chasm between our failures and God's holiness that must be bridged. It cannot just simply go away. And Jesus did it for us. Jonah, in his way, did it for the sailors. Jesus did it for us. It absolutely was necessary. And finally, I just want to quickly talk about three things that I think the atonement, the propitiation, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that Jonah was pointing forwards to, the three things that I think it does. It does a lot of things. These are the three that I want to end our time with as we head into communion. One is that it establishes the fact that once and for all, God is good. There's a line from a worship song years and years ago, the cross of Christ is proof enough you are good. And we, we, we often wonder, is God good? Is God good? And we look at our our, our, our life circumstances and we ask the question and we go, well, what about this? And this happened and can I trust God? And this happened, can I trust God? And that happened to me. Is God good? And that's understandable. But we never have to wonder that if we look at the cross because the cross tells us it is the definitive answer to the question, is God good? So when you feel forgotten, when you feel lost, misunderstood, laughed at, passed over, those are not the things to look at to wonder if God is good. Because the Bible is clear, life is hard, but God is good and we can know that forever in the cross. Number two, it's important to remember that God's grace is free, but it wasn't cheap. 
We sometimes think we can, we can do anything that we want. We, we misunderstand grace when we think, oh, so I can just do anything I want, huh? Well, yes, technically, yes, you can. But your, your freedom, your salvation was bought at a price. It was not cheap. It's free, but it wasn't cheap. A, a, a man gave his life for you. Now, that's, that's not to make you feel guilty, but it is the reality. Uh, someone died on your behalf. A price was paid. Now, we can respond to that like an entitled brat. Oh, good, I can do anything I want. Or we can respond like a grateful sinner, which leads me to my final point, which is that the cross, the atonement, it encourages us to show the same grace that we've been shown to others. It encourages us to show what we've been shown to those around us. It's, it's a version of the transformation that happens when, when we see the sailors uh, transformed. They offer a sacrifice to God as a result of, of this graciousness that they've, they've been shown. They think their lives are on the line. All of a sudden, it's, the sacrifice happens and they're so grateful. How much more then should Jesus' sacrifice, our understanding of that sacrifice, cause us to say, I have been forgiven so much. How much more should I, how can I look for ways? And the phrase pay it forward is cheesy and it's, you know, feel good and whatever. But it is so true. God doesn't want us to pay it back. We can't pay it back to God. But what he says is, go and love others. The, the, with the love that you have been shown, go and do likewise. Jesus washes his disciples' feet and, and says, no, don't wash my feet go wash their feet. You've seen this incredible act of love that you've been given. Go show that love to those around you. And as we turn our attention here to communion, I wanna go back to the song that we heard at the beginning. If we put ourselves in that song from Into the Woods, uh, the answer to the question is, it, is it, it's our fault. It's my fault. It's your fault. It's, our, it's all of our fault. But even if we wanted to take accountability for our actions, we couldn't. The chasm is too great. So Jesus did it for us. At the center of all things, at the, at the, at the core of existence, there is a God who gave up everything for you and for me. Jonah paved the way. He was, he was someone in a long line of, of people who were pointing forward to Jesus, to what substitutionary, sacrificial love could look like. But he was just the beginning. Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. And as we turn our attention now to this, this sacrament that Jesus has provided for us, we can do so with a heart of gratitude for his provision. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this table now uh, with, with hearts of gratitude. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were, once and for all, the atoning sacrifice. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
And so we do want to give our lives to you in response to that.